Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome. We are live. Praise God. We're back uh, after Thanksgiving. Sadie is cleaning herself on the chair live. I, there's no shame in her game, let me tell you. So Sadie found the chair. I'm happy because she was in front of on the computer, literally, like she was in front of the keyboard just a few minutes ago. So welcome to everybody jumping on. I hope you had um, a wonderful um, weekend and Thanksgiving. Uh, we we ended up, um, I ended up um, taking Chris to see some of his family members. So that's what I ended up doing. And so basically we're back and we're back with something fascinating and interesting. Let me tell you, some of you may have never heard this before, but I'm telling you, all roads lead to Rome. You ever hear that before? All roads lead to Rome? Well, they do. Let me tell you, they absolutely do. So I'm going to open up in prayer. I have to tell you a quick story because Missy has been in rare form today at the sanctuary. I have to tell you what she did. She has been all over the place. Everyone has been shaking their head and laughing today. And then we're going to get into, there's a lot to cover tonight. And, and Chet is tweeting in the dark right next door. So you may hear him. Uh, during the broadcast, Cyrus is on the ground sleeping to my right, your left. You may see him during the broadcast. So let's open up in prayer and then we'll get right into tonight. Father God, in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Lord, we come before you. We praise you. You are almighty God. You are high and lifted up for above every power, principality and might. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise due your precious holy name. Father, we humble ourselves before you this day, asking that the pull of the flesh becomes less in our lives, so you, your will, and your power become more in our lives. Father, we acknowledge you sent your son, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, to the earth, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was the Passover lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. He willingly died at Calvary. He purchased us by the shedding of his blood. He made an open show and spectacle of the enemy before all of creation. And we praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, rose again in three days. And after appearing to many, ascended back into heaven, took his rightful righteous place at the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns forevermore. He is our advocate before your throne. And we honor that before you this day. Lord, we invite your presence, the presence of Ruach Elohim, the spirit of the living God, and the presence of the Ruach HaKadosh, to fill this place, Lord, that the weight of your glory would fall, the power of your presence would move, that you would move mightily during this time. Father God, lead and guide us in all wisdom, counsel, might, power, and the reverential fear of the Lord. By the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, by the spirit of the one true living God, may only the truth and power of Almighty God with authority now come forth in Jesus' name. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we apply the blood of Jesus and take authority over every plot scheme, contract, assignment, weaponry, blueprint, attack, sabotage, strategy, and harm in any way, shape, or form, or through anyone that the enemy, satanic agents, dark forces, unclean spirits, familiar spirits, agents of the enemy, weak, willing hosts, and the like would attempt we command in the name of Jesus Christ, it be broken, canceled, aborted, destroyed, dismantled, disabled, thwarted, disrupted, blocked, nullified, disarmed, their communication lines disrupted so they cannot carry out their plans and bound up and cast back to the dry places and areas you have designated, Father God, to be bound there in the name of Jesus Christ and not return nor have anything sent in its place. Lord, take all the glory for yourself. You are the potter. We are merely the clay. You are the author and finisher of our faith, Father God. 
We say, come to us, Lord. Come to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And of course, Toby had to trigger Cyrus. So here you go, bud. There he goes. There's Cyrus's cameo for the evening. Okay. Did you just see Sadie look at him like, what's his problem? I saw that look. I don't know if you all caught it. Here he And here he comes back. Mommy's got to start a teaching. So, so pick a spot and get cozy. Okay, good. All right. So I have to tell you today what Missy did before we get into this. So Duchess goes outside, the little pig, into one of the gated areas we have that's attached to the house. Well, the only one in this house of four legs that knows how to open doors is Missy. I come down to the basement. The door is open and Duchess is hanging out in the basement, having herself a party. And Missy's up to acting like she did nothing. And we know she did it because she's the only one that knows how to do this. So this is uh, what we went through today. Amongst other things with Missy, um, it's been an all day affair. So I thought I'd share that with all of you. I should have taken a picture because I walked downstairs and there's Duchess hanging out, just having herself a fabulous time. So anyway, that happened today. So it was quite comical for all of us that were here. Okay, let's get into tonight. Now, I decided to do a deeper dive on this. There are some that are, are kind of talking about this or bringing it up, but I decided to do a deeper dive on this because all roads lead to Rome. And because of this, there is this thread between the Roman Empire, okay, through the ages to things we see happening in our nation now. And stay tuned till the end. I am telling you that this is all going to come full circle by the time we're done with this. And we're doing a deep dive into this to what really happened with the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he was really charged with, um, what they tried to do leading up to that to charge him with this specific thing, and how it connects to our nation now. So let us begin. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. We have to go back to the Kidron Valley to understand what is going on here. We have to lay a basis here, okay? So it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him saying, go from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan River. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to sustain you with food. So he went and did in accordance with the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Now, I believe this is where the, 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 the Kidron is also, and we'll get into that. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So there is this interesting and important thread that runs through the Old Testament concerning the process by which idols were removed from 
God's people. Now, why did I start with that? Well, because Ahab and Jezebel were one of the biggest offenders of idolatry, okay, in the Old Testament. One of the biggest offenders by far, uh, committing horrifically blasphemous things. So there's this important thread that runs. And th there's this certain process of which idols were removed from God's people's lives, okay? Israel's history was marked with idolatry. From the moment they were redeemed out of Egypt, Israel worshipped other gods. From the moment they were they they came forth out of Egypt, right? They may have come out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. Standing at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 32, where they were to wait for God's law, Moses, remember, was up there getting the law from God, Israel made a golden calf to worship in the name of Yahweh. When Moses came down the mountain, he burned the idol, crushed it to find dust, and poured it into a nearby river. In Deuteronomy 9.21, Moses recounts this event for Israel's remembrance. I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, and burned it in the fire and thoroughly crushed it, grinding the metal thoroughly until it was as fine dust. And I threw its dust in the brook that came down from the mountain. Now, this is Kidron, okay? While Moses made the people drink the water into which the idol dust was thrown, he notes that the dust of the idol was thrown into the brook that descended from the mountain. This sets a precedent for actions of the righteous kings throughout Israel's history. Each and every time the Lord raised up a righteous king to deliver his people from their wicked practices and their enemies, they would remove the idols from the land in a similar manner that Moses did at Sinai. The righteous king Asa followed suit with this. Now we're building up to this. We're building up to this. Followed suit with this. 1 Kings 15, 11 through 13. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father, David. He expelled the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also deposed his great-grandmother, Maka, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image for the goddess Asherah. Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it by the brook Kidron. Perhaps the greatest reformer uh, that was the was a king of Israel in their history, with the exception of Jesus Christ, was King Josiah. His reforms were very, they were substantial, and they are uh, documented in great detail and depth in 2 Kings 23. So consider the way in which the brook Kidron is at the center of his removal of idols in the land. 2 Kings 23, verses 4 through 6 and 12. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priest of the second rank, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal, for the goddess Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He got rid of the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in high places in Judah's cities and all around Jerusalem. Also, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, 
to the constellations, which is the Zodiac, and to all the starry hosts of heaven. Josiah brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem and burned it there and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. The altars, which were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courtyards of the house of the Lord, the king tore down and he smashed them there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. When King Hezekiah came to power, he made a point of cleansing all the impurity and the wicked practices that had been carried into the temple. The priests who ministered there followed suit as Moses and the righteous king so had done. So in 2 Chronicles 29, 16 and 30, 13, this is what it says. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and every unclean thing they found in the temple of the Lord, they brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's house. Then the Levites received it to take out to the Kidron Valley for disposal. <clears throat> Excuse me. The pattern of crushing idols and idolatrous altars and throwing them into the brook Kidron was symbolic. It represented how God would permanently remove idolatry from the lives of his people. So there is a pattern of the Kidron being a key part of the destroying and disposing of idols. So we have to set this basis so we understand what Jesus did when he really crossed over into the Garden of Gethsemane and then why he was charged the way he was. 2 Samuel 14, 23, then David called for Absalom and he came to the king and bowed his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed, kissed Absalom. So the soon to be betrayer Absalom kisses the king. Now remember this. 2 Samuel 15, 1, after this Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses, 50 men as runners before him. Then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste or he will overtake us quickly and bring disaster on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servant said to him, listen, your servants are ready to do whatever my Lord, the king desires or decides. So the king left and all his household with him. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the king left behind 10 women who were concubines to take care of the house or the palace. The king left and all the people with him and they stopped at the last house. All of David's servants passed on beside him and all the Cherethites, Pelethites, and the Gittites. 600 men who had come with him from Gath passed on before the king. So 600 men is a number that is involved when it comes to this coup and betrayal that is happening. So I want you to remember that number, 600 men, okay, and 10 that were left behind. I want you to remember those numbers. Now, 2 Samuel 15, verses 22 through 23. So David said to Ittai, go on and cross over the brook Kidron. So Ittai the Gittite crossed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. 
While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people crossed over. The king also crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people went on toward the way of the wilderness that lies between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. 2 Samuel 15, 30-31. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, with his head covered and walking barefoot. So he crosses over Kidron. He goes to the Mount of Olives. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. David was told, Ahithophel, your counselor, who is his, right, his inner circle in a way, is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, O Lord, I pray you turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. So remember this as we go forth. David represents in a way Jesus, Absalom represents the Pharisees, and Ahithophel represents Judas. Okay? There's a mirroring that's happening here. There's a mirroring because David, in a way, was accused of something very similar that they wanted to try to accuse Jesus of. 2 Samuel 17, 23. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled his donkey, set out and went to his home, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself. Ahithophel is Judas. Hanged himself. What did Judas do too? He hung himself. So he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So now with all of this groundwork biblically being laid, we're going to tie the Kidron, the Mount of Olives, the destroying of idols to the account of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion for you to understand this in a way you may have never, ever viewed it before and how it ties, has a thread from the Roman Empire that ties to something that happened in this nation that changed everything. So we're going to go to the New Testament now. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 2. Having said these things, Jesus left with his disciples and went across the ravine of the Kidron. There was a garden there, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas was betraying him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Jesus Christ is crossing over the area where many other kings and leaders took idols to be destroyed. Kidron was known as a death valley. Poor people were buried there who could not afford burials. Idols were destroyed there. David crossed over the Kidron as he was fleeing from Absalom. Jesus is crossing over this place of death where idols are destroyed to his death. So he's crossing over this place where idols are destroyed in order for his death to be lifted up on a cross to defeat death. So he's crossing over that place of death and destruction of idols to defeat it. He's walking over that place where righteous kings destroyed idols because he's about to destroy them by being lifted up, okay? So this is really important for where we're going. Luke 22, verses 35 through 44. And he said to them, when I sent you out without a money belt and provision bag and extra sandals, did you lack anything? They answered nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money belt is to take it along and also his provision bag. And he who has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you, that this which is written must be completed and fulfilled in me. And he was counted with the criminals. 
Remember this, okay? For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So he's telling them to arm themselves up, okay? He's telling them from here on out, you're going to carry a sword. You're going to carry a money belt. You're going to do these things. Okay, so now we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 39. Still Luke 22. And he came out and went, as was his habit, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Who went to the Mount of Olives weeping after he crossed over the Kidron? David. Who's crossing over the Kidron to the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane to, to, to cry out before the Lord? Jesus. And the disciples followed him. When he arrived at the place called Gethsemane, he said to them, pray continually that you may not fall into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, deeply distressed and anguished, almost to the point of death. He prayed more intently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. So there is an intense distress on the Mount of Olives at Gethsemane because betrayal and death were pursuing Jesus. Just as David wept there because betrayal and death were pursuing him through Absalom, Ahithophel, and others. Now, we go back to 2 Samuel for a minute, 15 verses 30 through 31. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, with his head covered and walking barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. David was told, Ahithophel, your counselor is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, O Lord, I pray you turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Okay, so we have this mirroring of this Kidron Valley being a place of the destruction of idols. David had to cross over it as death and betrayal were pursuing him through Absalom. Jesus had to cross over it as death and betrayal were pursuing him. And now we get to the part of his arrest. This is where it's going to get fascinating for many of you. So. Jesus's arrest is mentioned in all four gospels. It's mentioned in Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56, in Mark 14, verses 43 through 52, in Luke 22, verses 47 through 53, and John 18, verses 1 through 11. Even though the four gospels say similar things, they don't all say the same thing. So, Judas accompanied by Roman guards. Okay, I want you to remember this as we go forth. And also remember the account of David and Absalom and the 600 men that were involved. Remember this also. So we're going to go to Matthew 26 first. We have to read all four Gospels, the account in all four, to understand what's going on here. Matthew 26, 47. And while he yet spake... This is the new, uh, this is the King James version first. Lo, Judas, one of the 12 came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. 
The Amplified says, as Jesus was still speaking, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Luke twenty-two forty-seven, King James, and while he yet spake, behold a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. The Amplified, while he was still speaking, a crowd came, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve disciples, was leading the way for them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Mark 14.43, King James Version. And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The Amplified says, and at once while he was still speaking, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, came up and with him a crowd of men with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So in the interlinear Greek, the word oklos, O-C-H-L-O-S, translates to a crowd. More specifically, it can be translated to mean a dynamic crowd. Well, what does dynamic mean? Pertaining to or characterized by energy, effective action, vigorously active or forceful. That's what dynamic means. Now, go to John, because the key here is in John. John 18.3, King James Version. Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. So John uses the word band of men rather than multitude or crowd. But in the Amplified, it further defines that band of men. And it says, so Judas having obtained the Roman cohort and some officers from the high priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So the interlinear Greek word is spiron. S-P-E-I-R-A-N, which translates to cohort. So what is a cohort? A cohort is a tenth part of a legion, which is 600 armed men. How many was involved in this issue between David and Absalom and Ahithophel? When David left, 600 armed men. How many are involved in coming to arrest Jesus? There are 600 armed men from the Roman army that are coming to arrest him, okay? Now, I'm going to go back to 2 Samuel for a minute, 15, 18. All of David's servants passed on beside him, and all the Cherethites, Pelethites, and Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. So there's an interest, there's an interesting thread here. So for Jesus and his 11 disciples with him, remember Judas flew the coop and went to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. That is a lot of soldiers to send after 12 men. You're sending 600 soldiers, Roman soldiers, after 12 men. Now, this is a tactical choice on the part of the Roman army. This is about to get really interesting, so buckle up here. This is a tactical choice on the part of the Roman army. 
What were the Romans expecting to happen to send 600 armed men to Gethsemane? Were they preparing for an armed rebellion, an armed resistance, some some sort of, of, of you know, um, hostile engagement? To have an armed rebellion, you need weapons and you need rebels. What's a rebel? A person who rises in opposition or armed resistance against an established government or ruler. So now as we read on in the account, we do see that there were indeed weapons involved. Because John 18, 10 through 12 says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? So we see that at least some of Jesus' followers, his disciples, indeed carried weapons on them. However, are they actually rebels? Well, to answer this, we have to go back in scripture well before the arrest at Gethsemane. Were Jesus' opponents attempting to smear him as spreading anti-Roman propaganda? Was this the plan of the Pharisees? Absalom attempted to smear David as being anti-Israel, that Israel needed to be rid of David. We see similar happening here. Now, Matthew 22, verses 15 through 21. This is where we have to go back and take a look-see for a minute as to how this, what we're about to understand and learn came to be. So this is what it says. Then the Pharisees went and conspired together, plotting how to trap him by distorting what he said. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are sincere and that you teach the way of God, of God truthfully without concerning yourself about what anyone thinks or says of your teachings. For you are impartial and do not seek anyone's favor. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it permissible to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, asked, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, which was a day's wage. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's, who was Tiberius at the time, the emperor Tiberius Caesar. Then he said to them, Then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were caught off guard and they left him and went away. Now, Jesus's reply here was brilliantly maneuvering around what they were attempting to do, which is to entrap him with this question. So he might answer that the Jews should not pay tax to the Roman government, which would be inciting them to break the law, which could be considered sedition. Now, remember this word sedition. However, Jesus's reply is brilliant in this in this um, this um, engaging with with the Pharisees in the Roman culture of that time. Caesar was considered God. Tiberius Julius Caesar Augustus was the ruler at the time. The process of deifying Roman rulers came from Eastern cultures 
as the empire expanded and conquered those regions. The Greeks and the Egyptians customarily worshipped their rulers as gods, including the pharaohs and Alexander the Great, even while they were still alive. There is considerable evidence of the worship and deification of Roman rulers. The first undisputed Roman ruler to be deified was Julius Caesar. He began to be worshipped while he was alive due to his military successes. Statues were erected and games were held in his honor. His successor and adoptive son, Augustus, became the first Roman emperor in 27 BCE. He inherited the divinity of Caesar and was also worshipped during his lifetime, though um, he was worshipped in his lifetime just as his, his adopted father was prior. Now, what Jesus was truly saying in his answer to the Pharisees what that was that Caesar was not God. There was a staunch difference between the two. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus was separating the two, showing that Caesar and God were two different entities. Now, stating that Caesar was not God was a politically charged statement. However, it was one the Pharisees could not maneuver their way around because if they disagreed with Jesus, they would be agreeing with the, with the Caesar is God concept, which at that point they themselves would have committed public blasphemy. So was so that so knowing this now, was Jesus and his men viewed as rebels and revolutionaries? opposition to the Roman Empire. Was that truly what the Pharisees were attempting to entrap him with, being they themselves were in the back pocket of Rome? What we would call controlled opposition. The Pharisees were controlled opposition. So to understand this now, we have to go to the crucifixion. With Jesus at Golgotha, which is Calvary, there's two men with him on Golgotha. Now, at first sight, these two men are perceived to be thieves. But if we take a closer look, we will understand what truly the charges were against them and against Jesus. So with the interpretations, there seems to be this issue of interpreting who these two men really were. So there seems to be an issue with the inter some of these interpretations um, of what they really were guilty of. So Matthew 27, 38 says, at the same time, two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. Mark 15, 27 says, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Luke 23, 32 says, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be executed with him. John 19, 18 says, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now, go. we're going to go back to Luke for a minute. Luke 23, 32 categorizes these men as criminals, meaning committing crimes against the Roman authorities. So these two men are indeed criminals according to the Roman authorities, but Jesus isn't considered a criminal by Rome, yet he is being led away 
with the criminals. In the Greek, it is heteroi kagor. It's it's heteroi kagoroi. Uh, no, no, it's this word. There's the second word is very hard to pronounce, but it's heteroi kakorgoi, which translates to other criminals. Okay. So in Luke 23, 32, the entire direct translation from Greek to English is, we're being led away now, also other criminals, two with him to be put to death. So that is literally the direct translation of that verse. The word, the word also, other, and two brings forth this other perspective of what is going on because it says we're being led away now also other criminals to with him to be put to death. So to put this in perspective for us, if I told you this morning I was at the diner with two ministers, it does not tell you anything about what I do. It only describes what they do. They're two ministers. However, if I said this morning I was at the diner with two other ministers, that indicates that I also am a minister. It is not only describing what they do, but what I do as well. So now knowing this, back to Luke 23 and the crucifixion. We're being led away now. Also, other criminals. Also other criminals, two with him to be put to death. This doesn't mean this doesn't mean Jesus was a revolutionary, but from the perspective of the authorities, it was very likely that Jesus was condemned with the accusation of sedition. Now, what is sedition? It is conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a state or monarch. Now, in the New Testament Greek, the words robber and thief are not interchangeable. So now we have to go back to this issue of that some of the translations say robber, some say thieves, and then Luke says criminals. John 10.1 I assure you and most solemnly say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up from some other place, that one is a thief and a robber. As you can see, they are different words and mean different things. You can't interchange them. This is not a matter of shoplifting or stealing a piece of fruit from the market. The two men being crucified with Jesus are not thieves. Rome did not crucify people for common shoplifting or stealing. A better translation is revolutionaries. Mark 15, 7. The man called Barabbas was imprisoned with the insurrectionists or revolutionaries who had committed murder in the civil rebellion. The word rebel in Greek is Stasiaston, okay? The word insurrection in Greek is stase, okay? S-T-A-S-E-I. So they're similar. So the word is translated as insurrectionist 
or revolutionary. So given what we know so far, it is very possible to consider the fact that these two thieves with Jesus are really insurrectionists or revolutionaries, which would place Jesus from the point of view of the Roman authorities as being an insurrectionist or a revolutionary from their point of view and their political view, okay? He was considered a rebel. During this time, there was a very intricate and difficult socio-political atmosphere in Judea. The Pharisees were in the back pocket of Rome and therefore willing to forsake their own to appease the Roman authorities and therefore kept or keep the illusion of their position, okay? Keep their power. The Pharisees were very corrupt and far from holy, and Jesus' ministry on earth very much shined a light and exposed that many of the Pharisees were indeed a fraud, were controlled by Rome, there was nothing holy about them, and they did a lot of unholy blasphemous things in the dark against God. So, you have this now to consider. Also, many on earth called Jesus the Son of God. So what did the Son of God, someone being called the Son of God during this time, what did that mean to Rome? Okay? So today, if you are a Christian and someone approaches you and says, Jesus is the Son of God, that is going to really resonate with you and bear witness in your spirit, and you will probably say, yes and amen, he is. However, if one is not a Christian and the same thing is said, they will say they don't believe that Jesus is the son of God, or they might mock you or dismiss you. Now, from the Roman perspective, son of God had two possible implications, one political in nature, one religious in nature. The Romans believed in one being the son of God. However, in their beliefs, that would be the emperor who is Caesar. So the Roman Emperor Caesar is the son of God from the point of the view of the Romans. So to claim that someone else is indeed the son of God could have major political implications. So let us examine closely the words of Pontius Pilate to understand this, who was the Roman governor in Judea at the time of Jesus's arrest. Notice Pontius Pilate and what we're about to read in Luke 23 doesn't talk about the miracles at all that Jesus performed, healing the sick, raising the dead, multiplying food to feed over 5,000 people, nor does Pilate address at all any of Jesus's teachings. Pilate hyper-focuses on one very specific thing. Now we're going to read this whole account, Luke 23, verses 1 through 25. So, so Pilate is hyper-focused on one thing, and we're going to find out what it is. Then the whole assembly got up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse Jesus, asserting, We found this man misleading and perverting our nation and forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar and claiming that he himself is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is just as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were insistent and said, he stirs up the people to rebel. 
teaching throughout Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as in Jerusalem. Verse 6, when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to the jurisdiction of Herod, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly pleased. He had wanted to see him for a long time because of what he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miraculous sign done by him. And he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no reply. The chief priest and the scribes were standing there continually accusing him heatedly. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking and ridiculing him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, sent him back to Pilate. Now that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other before they had been enemies. Verse 13, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man before me as one who corrupts and incites the people to rebellion. After examining him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and indeed he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Verse 18. Now, it says in parentheses, he was obligated to release to them one prisoner at the feast. That was the custom, okay? Verse 18, but they loudly shouted out all together saying, away with this man and release Barabbas to us. He was the one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection that happened in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them again, wanting to release Jesus, but they kept shouting out, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what wrong has he done? I have found no guilt in him demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent and unrelenting, demanding with loud voices that Jesus be crucified. And their voices began to prevail and accomplish their purpose. Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he handed over Jesus to their will. So, so Barabbas was in prison, accused of insurrection and murder. An insurrectionist is released, and Jesus takes his place. Okay, so someone who committed an insurrection is released and Jesus takes his place. Now, John 18 verses 28 through 40. We're going to look at this again because Pilate, same thing, hyper focuses on one question that he has. One question with Jesus. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium which is the governor's palace. Now it was early and the Jews did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be ceremonially unclean, but might be able to eat and participate in the feast of unleavened bread, the Passover. So Pilate came to them and asked, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Then Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. The Jews said, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. 
This was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to indicate by what manner of death he was going to die. So Pilate went into the praetorium again and called Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So he's hyper-focused. Are you claiming to be a king? Because that is insurrection. That is sedition. That is being, a revo in a way, a revolutionary. Jesus replied, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own people and their chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting hard to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate said to him, then you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. This is why I was born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears and listens carefully to my voice. Pilate said to him scornfully, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no guilt in him but you have a custom that I release someone from you at the Passover. So shall I release for you the king of the Jews? Then they shouted back again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now it says here, same thing. Listen to this. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now remember back in the translation of the gospels, it says Jesus was crucified between two robbers. That word is really not robber. It's insurrectionist. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. The two men being crucified with Jesus were insurrectionists, okay? So notice that in both Luke and John, Pilate had this political fixation only of, are you a king? This is what Pilate focused in on with questioning Jesus. So after this interrogation, Pilate states himself that he finds no fault in this man. Now, why is this? Well, it's because Jesus answered Pilate's political questions correctly to Pilate's satisfaction. When Pilate point blank asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus rebuttals with, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus answered from the perspective of Pontius Pilate, from the Roman perspective, he was not claiming to be the son of God. You see, he didn't say to Pilate he was the son of God. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. So therefore, he's not, to Pilate at least, he's not saying he's the son of God. Or in, in their mind, that would be the emperor, that Jesus is claiming to be the emperor of Rome. And Jesus is not claiming to have an earthly kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. So he's answering Pilate's political questions correctly. Now, anything religious really was not a big deal for the Romans because they were a pagan society to begin with. Therefore, people could believe religiously whatever they wanted. As long as you don't bring politics into it. Does that sound familiar? You can believe whatever you want. Just don't bring politics into it. That was the mantra of the Roman Empire. You can worship whatever God you want. Just don't bring politics into it. Don't claim to be the son of God. Don't claim to be a king. Now, 
let's look at the second possible perspective of the Romans, which is this religious one. The Romans and their beliefs and mythology were already familiar with the concept of being a son of God in the sense of a human being actually being the son of a God and a mortal woman. Example, the movie Clash of the Titans. Perseus was the son of a God and a mortal woman. So if all this information comes to the Roman commander, Yeshua, this guy Yeshua, has some followers, some are armed, and oh, by the way, there is a claim that he is the son of God. What would it mean from their cultural perspective that there is a possibility that the individual in question, Jesus, could be the son of God, like Perseus? They're thinking like Perseus. They're thinking he's the son of a God and a mortal woman when they hear that term. That's the religious implication. The political implication is he's claiming to be Caesar, okay? So the Roman commander might ask, well, what God? What type of God? What God is he the son of? Remember, there were many false gods worshipped during that time in Rome. And remember, they did not have the New Testament. They only, in the Jewish faith, had the Old Testament to look at. So Romans only would have potentially the Old Testament to look at if this was, in their mind, a Jewish issue. So is he the son of the Lord of hosts or another God? So from the Roman perspective, they are going to arrest a man who has followers, some are armed, and claims to be the son of a god of war. Now, why would they believe this? Well, back in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts, the name for God, the military leader, led Israel to conquer Canaan, led David to slay Goliath, to conquer the Philistines, led Joshua destroyed to destroy Jericho. So from the Roman perspective, this is a God of war. So this man is the son of a God of war. Thus explaining the cohort, the 600 Roman soldiers that the commander took to arrest Jesus. Given the fact that Simon Peter actually engaged in a violent act to defend his master and was prepared in that moment on to death to defend him, yes, these men with Jesus were very focused, to say the least, on potentially protecting Jesus. So the, the Roman commander who brings the cohort is given word of this, that some of them have weapons as well. Now. Once Judea became a Roman province, the Jews became subject to the Romans and their law. So let's look at what the Roman law says when it comes to carrying weapons. Now, in that area of Judea, the danger of rebellion was more common than other areas. The threat was constantly there of an uprising. This law was was passed to protect citizens from severe punishment at the hand of Rome. This law was passed in 50 BC, and this law prohibited the possession of weapons other than hunting or for self-defense while traveling. Very specific law they made. In 81 BC, 
a law came to be that forbid weapons in the Pomerium, which was the civil section of the city. You couldn't bring weapons in there. So the word Pomerium is a contraction of the Latin word post uh, morium, which means beyond the walls. So you had to enter through a gate to get into this area. If anyone just breached the border without following protocol, it would be considered a symbolic invasion and they would be killed. That's how strict it was. This law was broken by Pompey the Great in 52 BC when he completely broke that law by bringing the entire Roman legion into that area to restore public order, just a fact. So there were even points with certain rulers where they only allowed certain units of the Roman army to carry certain weapons. So the disciples with Jesus being fishermen, even if they were carrying a dagger or a knife and claimed it was for fishing, it still would have been frowned upon by the Roman authorities and they would be suspicious of such because of these laws. And because there is a claim, he is the son of God and a God of war at that. Now to the charge that Pilate had written and put atop the cross, Jesus was crucified on. We have to get to that now. John 19 verses 8 through 17. So when Pilate heard this said, he was even more alarmed and afraid. He went into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not answer him. So Pilate said to him, do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the sin and guilt of the one who handed me over the Pharisees to you is greater than your own. So the Pharisee's sin and guilt in the eyes of God was far greater than Pilate's. As a result of this, Pilate kept making efforts to release him, but the Jews kept screaming, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar and rebels against the emperor. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, look, your king. But they shouted, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now I'm going to tell you how terrible this was that they said that. And we're, we're going to get to that in a moment. We have no king but Caesar. Remember that. Verse 16, then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side. And Jesus between them. You see how it says, and with him to others? It means their charges were the same. Okay? 
Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. Why? Because that could be viewed that they had a different king than Caesar, which we'll get into in a minute. But he said, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written, and it will remain written. So to understand what really the Pharisees are saying here, we must go all the way back to 1 Samuel to understand why their sin was so grave here. Why was their sin greater than Pilate's who, who did not know God nor worship God, right? Nor have a relationship with the Lord. Why was the Pharisees' sin greater? Okay, 1 Samuel 8. Four through nine. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But their demand displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge and rule over us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have abandoned me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. So now listen to their voice, only solemnly warn them and tell them the ways of the king who will reign over them. Okay, what does this have to do with this? The Jews were rejecting God as their king and wanting their allegiance to be to an earthly king. When the Pharisees incited the people to shout in John 19, 15, but they shouted, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. It was a rejection all over again of God as their king and pledging their allegiance to an earthly king. Thus the Pharisees revealing truly in their heart who they served and it was not almighty God. This is one of the reasons Jesus said to Pilate that their sin was greater than his. Also, the Jewish people, in a way, were enslaved to Rome, and the Pharisees benefited from this financially, politically, and Jesus being made the ruler would have meant they lose their power. So Jesus, continuing in what he was doing and potentially being made a king of the Jews, would have meant the Pharisees lose their power, authority, and entitlements that Rome was giving them to be controlled opposition. So in order to keep their power and position, they wanted their own people to continue to be slaves. Does that sound familiar? How half the church to keep their power and position 
want the people to be slaves to every corrupt agenda in this nation. That those in the government that want to keep their power and position want the people to continue to be slaves so they can benefit from it. Now, this was done as well when they said we have no king but Caesar to try and make the charge of sedition or insurrection stick. This is why Jesus says to Pilate in John 19, 12, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the sin and guilt of the one who handed me over to you is greater than your own. This is why the charge was king of the Jews being put on the cross is so crucial. First of all, Pilate had had it with the Jewish authorities wanting to crucify a man that he found no fault in. So king of the Jews was in a way a mockery of them. It was it was it was putting a a dark cloud over them in the empire. Let's put it that way. However, anyone that claimed to be the king in the perspective of the Roman authorities could be considered a rebel, a revolutionary, an insurrectionist and committing the act of sedition. Also, in the Old Testament, Jesus coming is referenced to as a king. So Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So truly, Jesus was the king of the Jews in the entire world as well, and fulfilling prophecy when that charge was put on the cross. Therefore, these things further clarify why that charge was on the cross, which also further solidifies what the Jews were accusing him of, which means Jesus would have been crucified with two other insurrectionists. So the crucifixion and persecution that took place leading to Calvary had to do with being accused of insurrection. An innocent man was accused of insurrection and sentenced for it and sentenced for it. Does this sound familiar to January 6th? Does this sound familiar to events that have happened? Like I said, all roads lead to Rome. And there is a thread that ties all the way back to the Roman Empire and these events and to now, right? Innocent men and women being accused of an insurrection, imprisoned for it, while the authorities incite those to condemn them. These rulers of the darkness and territorial spirits that ruled over the Roman Empire, Pythos was a spirit during that time, still is, it's a very ancient demon. Uh, there were others, that same oppressive, enslaving, persecuting ruler of the darkness and powers over Rome are at work in our nation and influencing and directing our government and leadership. These are ancient rulers of the darkness that we are dealing with here. Ephesians 6.12 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what it says. Powers, principalities, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Rulers of the darkness of this world are the highest of this world are the highest level of demon we have to contend with on this earth. The spiritual wickedness in high places are what the warring angels are dispatched to deal with. So almighty God, it's stated, I pray this when we open in prayer, he is high and lifted up for above every power, principality and might. This is why our focus first and foremost needs to be on him, not on now, now listen to what I'm about to say here. Our focus first and foremost, okay, the things can come secondary to this, but our focus first and foremost needs to be on almighty God and listening for his instruction, not on intel, on rabbit holes, on psyops, um, on propaganda, on media, on any of these things. Our faith should not be in men nor should be allowing those to hyper-focus us on men above God. So our faith should not be in men, nor should we be allowing those to hyper-focus us on men delivering us above God, because men are fallible and will fail you. However, the Lord thy God never fails, and the nation turning to him, his capital people humbling themselves and turning to him, is what will turn the nation. Man is a tool in the hands of an infinitely powerful God to accomplish his work and his will on the earth. And at the cross, the accusation of insurrection turned ultimately into deliverance for the world that day. Think about that one for a moment. The accusation and charge of insurrection, the Lord used it to bring deliverance that day to the earth and to make an open show and spectacle of the enemy before all of creation. John 3:16 For God so loved and dearly prized the world that he gave his one and only begotten son so that whoever believes and trusts in him as savior shall not perish but have eternal life. All glory be to God. Praise the Lord. You know what? God is our righteous judge. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He is the Lord of hosts. He is our general that leads us. He goes before us in battle. And we have to remember that in the middle of all of what's going on and constantly go back to him because men will fail you. God will never, ever, ever fail you. God is absolutely good. He is righteous in all of his judgments and ways, and he has a plan for this nation. And we have to go to him and hearken unto him for that plan because man is a tool in the hands of a very powerful, infinitely wise Almighty, righteous God, that no, not one entity can come anywhere near touching or equaling. And we have to remember that that's the reverence for God. That's the reverence for God. So we have to understand that. Now, 
I am, as we're coming to an end here, I'm sorry, guys. I have been, let me tell you something. The enemy did not want this coming out because the second I came on, I have been fighting my nose and my throat ever since I came on and praise God, we got through it. So I'm going to do right now what we would call an altar call. Uh, so if you have been watching and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you walked away from your relationship with Jesus and you are coming back to him, you are repenting and coming back to him. We are going to say a very simple prayer. It is the starting point for your relationship. All relationships have a starting point. This is your starting point. So we're going to say it right now. Repeat after me. Almighty God, I acknowledge this day that I am a sinner, that I have been judged according to your laws, and I have been found guilty of being a sinner, and know that I need a Savior. I acknowledge Jesus Christ came to earth, and he died on Calvary for my sins, and he purchased me by the shedding of his blood. And he redeemed me and he delivered me. And I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. I ask him to come into my heart and come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. From this day forward, I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise God. If you said that for the first time, or if you walked away from your relationship with the Lord and you have rededicated your life, please email us at hello at arcofgrace-ministries.com. We would love to be able to bless you with some materials, a Bible if you need it. Um, and we praise God for those that said that with us. So I, I, I pray that this starts to get you to understand the thread that we're dealing with ancient um, ancient um, demonic forces here and rulers of the darkness that have a thread from Rome. All ro roads most definitely and most certainly lead to Rome. And events that we have seen happen in our nation are the same events that we saw happen back then because you're dealing with wicked ancient ones that are involved in the middle of this, trying to resell and repackage and repurpose the same garbage to a modern day society. And so just think about that. Uh, pray about it. Uh, we are going to put the notes up on the blog. Uh, you can go to arcofgrace.org. Org, and we have the ministry blog there. That is where the notes will be, and you can print the notes out. You can study them, and you can pray about it. So I I, I pray that this minister to you today, this deep dive, um, and it shows you exactly how it all connects. So thank you everyone for joining us tonight. And um, Cyrus is out cold. Sadie left. Cyrus is out cold. I have no idea where my husband is. So this is this is my evening thus far. I think he's out in what he calls the man cave. Okay, that's all I'm gonna say. But he calls it the man cave. So before we go, we're gonna put up um give a derm for just a moment. We get a lot of emails about 
what I use as skincare. I know that sounds funny. We've chuckled in the office about it. We've, we've laughed with the staff about it, but we do. This is what I use. It is all natural. I am honestly saying it is one of the best skincare lines I have ever used. Um, and the people that have given derm are believers. And so we are happy to be a blessing to them. You can use promo code ARC10. So God bless everyone. Keep the faith. We will be back on tomorrow. Now, this is going to get real interesting because we're talking about what the hey, hey is going on up in Alaska, the last frontier. And we have the duct tape missionaries. Yes, that is their nickname. The duct tape missionaries joining us to talk about it. It's truly one of the last frontiers in America. And what goes on with the natives in Alaska and how much bondage they are in and how much ministering they need, I think you're really going to find fascinating. So we will be back on tomorrow with that. We will announce and God bless everyone. Keep the faith armor up. According to Ephesians chapter six, Psalm 91, say it every single day. It takes two to three minutes. Powerful, powerful. You have to activate it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Also, I encourage people to say the Lord's Prayer because Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way. The order of that prayer is what is so important. Also, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, in the believer's authority, I quote those scriptures every day from Ephesians 1 and Ephesians chapter 3. I suggest you get yourself a copy of the believer's authority. If you need help with that, we can absolutely help you with that. You can email us. And have a wonderful rest of your evening, everyone. We love you. We will see you tomorrow. Hello, everyone. Amanda Grace here. So, as many of you know, Dr. Mark Sherwood and Dr. Michelle Sherwood of the Functional Medical Institute are mine and Chris's doctors. And so I went to Dr. Sherwood with a problem that I was seeing, not only with, with what I was going through, but with what other women were going through concerning their metabolism, concerning energy, concerning their hormones. And so we put our heads together and we are very happy now to finally be able to present to you Rafa for women. Rafa means healer in Hebrew. So it is an ode to the Lord because he is our healer. He put things in the earth that help heal us. And so Rafa is a product that was created for that. It also helps by helping with a healthy metabolism and natural hormones, as well as it helps balance fatigue, it helps with weight gain, night sweats, mood swings, blood sugar issues, and more. It is all natural. And I find more and more people are going into the natural arena in order to find solutions to issues that they're going through. So if you'd like to learn more, you can go to www.arcofgrace.org forward slash ministry dash partners to learn more about Rafa today. God bless. Hey everyone, Amanda Grace here. 
If you are looking for advice on financial matters, if you think gold and silver might be right for you, go to bh-pm.com today. Andrew Sorcini of Beverly Hills Precious Metals, who has been on Ark of Grace many times and loves to answer our viewer questions, is here with his team to answer all of your gold and silver needs. Whether you want to buy gold and silver, whether you have questions to see if it's right for you, whether you are looking to roll over retirement accounts, go to bh-pm.com today and Andrew and his team will be more than happy to assist you with all of your needs. If you want to support an amazing patriot and be a blessing, go to MyPillow.com today and use promo code ARK, A-R-K, to save up to 66% or more off of all MyPillow products. They have pillows, of course, but they are so much more than pillows. They have sheets. They have slippers. They have bathrobes. They even have dog beds. And a fun fact for all of you, Noble, one of our pigs at our animal sanctuary, has indeed slept on a MyPillow dog bed. So if you want to be a blessing, you can go to MyPillow.com today and use promo code ARC. It is an alternative to big pharma based on quantum physics, over 40 scripture verses written into these patches for everything from blood sugar, anxiety, pain, neuropathy, to immune system boost, dog pain. They are very sincere about um, having alternatives to big pharma. We are a big advocate of natural solutions to help with pain and, and, and blood sugar and a host of other issues. I yeah. tried the pain patches and, yes, and they worked when I used them. When you connect it to your body, the skin patch changes changes your brainwaves. Sugar, this one is neuropathy. I actually have it on. And we use this on Toby, actually, because Toby's about eight years old. And from being paralyzed years ago and the Lord miraculously healing him, he has a little leftover with his joints and his hips. So we actually give him the doggy pain patches. What was he doing? He was running? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I walked him out. And wow, he's boom. And he got power. I said, no way. And I don't know. I said, Amanda, what? What did you do to him? To <laughs> <laughs> so it's good.